You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I'm going to try to jump in here. One of the one of the challenges here is how does, you know, I get plopped into the middle of your of your uh, Sunday teaching series and, you know, what am I going to talk about? Um, and so I said, well, I'll just do some stuff that I'm interested in. And Gil said, fine, go ahead. And I'll just say one of the things, I am a professional theologian, a lot of different things I, I, I engage with. One of the areas that I have thought about and written about, continue to think about, um, includes the study, you could say, the study of human history, the Christian study of human history. Not history, but what does... Why do things happen the way they do? And what does it all mean from a Christian perspective? Um, now, of course, that's a big universal question everybody asks uh, in their lives. Why, why are these things happening to me? And what is my role in the things that do happen? Um, everyone, Christians included, will say things like, well, of course... Uh, we all have decisions to make in our lives, and we all have responsibilities that we have to attend to. And those decisions and responsibilities do surely make a difference. They can change things. They can organize life and, if you will, history in a certain way. But, of course, that's where it all starts getting very complicated that the decisions I might make and the responsibilities I and others might have might actually make the kind of difference I want them to make. Uh, if you're a Ukrainian right now, I am sure you are quite clear about who is responsible for your life in a deep way. Um, but then what? You think you have decisions you can make that can respond to the situation that you're in given the people who are responsible for what's going on. I can do a little of this, I can do a little of that, I can try to persuade others to get involved in what I'm trying to do, but I would guess that for most people in the Ukraine today, I know one or two, you feel absolutely stuck. And all your responsibilities and decisions that everybody has don't seem to come together in a way that can actually get you from A to B in your own decision making. And I think a lot of people feel that way about their life and their lives as they look them over. So the question of history is filled with deep hopes for individuals, also deep temptations, deep deceptions, and finally deep frustrations. And as I say, I think that's a universal sort of pattern. You want to know why? You know what it all, want to know what it all adds up to? You want to think you have something you can do about it, and then in the end you're not so sure what any of that is. Now, Christians, on the other hand, as I say, feel all this, but they have one thing they add, if you will, which is rather major, and that's God. Um, God is at the heart of my history and human history. So, from the point of view of a theologian, the question is, how does the fact that God is at the center of my history and human history change how we understand all those things I just talked about, decisions you make and responsibilities you have and so on and so forth? So the question is, you know, why 
do things happen and what does it mean that they do and what's my place in it has a very particular response if you're a Christian as opposed to if you're just thinking in general. So I'm going to, this morning, just take a test case about this whole way of Christians thinking about history. And the test case has to do with the decline of Christian faith in North America. Why is it happening? What does it mean that it's happening? What is my role in any of this? And I'm sure you're, you're aware, a spate of reports all the time, and especially more recently, on disappearing churches, waning Christian faith, sort of transmogrified religious attitudes in the culture, how COVID might be rearranging the religious landscape of America, articles pouring forth all the time, every week. And I think that the numbers you have probably heard, if you've looked at any of these, these things, are probably fairly accurate. That is to say, there probably are fewer people significantly going to church now in North America than just 10, 15, let alone 20 years ago. The number is probably decreasing even as we speak, and probably the decline is gaining speed. So the, the history question is why, what does it mean, and what is my place in all of this? Now, I, I just point out, so as not to speak altogether abstractly, you know, I used to tell my students, do not use Wikipedia. Um, I've changed. Wikipedia has gotten better, better, and better. Uh, they just got sued by the Russian government for thousands and thousands of dollars for actually printing about the Ukraine. God forbid they should do such a thing. But anyway, they actually have a big article right now on Wikipedia, which is relatively new, I think, called The Decline of Christianity. That's a separate article. And it actually it's filled with some pretty good uh, statistics. So let me just note a few of them, and I'm quoting more or less from the article. Uh, moderate and liberal denominations in the United States have been closing down churches at a rate of three or four times greater than the number of new churches being consecrated. 3,700 uh, 3, churches that close each year, of them, up to half are unsuccessful new churches to boot. The more conservative evangelical denominations have also declined representing 23% of the population in 2006 and 14% in 2020. It's according to the Public Religion Research Institute. And this is across the board. They give statistics not just for Protestantism and so on, but for, uh, say, Eastern Orthodox. We heard in the sermon uh, here at 9 uh, from Mark about Alexander Schmemann and so on. There's a big resurgence, we thought, in Eastern Orthodoxy going on. Uh, but according, in 2021, the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese of America, the largest Orthodox church in the United States, reported membership losses during a 40-year period. Uh, 38% decline since um, 2009. And uh, now, we're also told, well, thing, things have gone down quite a bit, uh, but they're stabilizing. They're stabilizing right now in the last year. So anyway, look, these are the sort of things you read about, and I'm, I hope you're concerned about them. I hope they, they touch sort of something that's going on. Um, but so what does one make of this? Well, sociologists love this. <laughs> this, is their, this is their meat and potatoes. We're looking at decline of religion here and there, and people end up doing here. What does it all mean? Um, and they rush in with glee. 
And one of the reasons I've been thinking about that is that up in Canada, the equivalent of the Census Bureau, Statistics Canada, came out just a few months ago with a big set of religion statistics. And that got all the journalists in Canada sort of scurrying around and giving some ideas about these things. Of course, maybe you have even read these things. At this rate of decline, according to Statistics Canada, this church and this church and this church, not just one, but it included the Anglican Church of Canada, will have disappeared completely in 2040. Uh, now, of course, that's nonsense because that's not quite how it works, but, but it's reflecting sort of a, a curve numerically on these things. So there's been a whole slew of articles that have been coming out in the news trying to figure this out and so on. And uh, the sociologists give a set of reasons. I'll just list you a few for uh, why this might be happening, not just in Canada, but in the United States as well. Uh, first of all, uh, there have been new avenues of social connectivity over the last 50 years that have grown up, and especially more recently uh, on the internet, social media, and so on. Uh, people don't need to come to churches anymore to be with people. So things have changed about what community means. Number two, the new values of individual choice which have grown up means that people are being shaped in ways that are disconnected from families, from parents, from grandparents. It's all about more and more, I've got to make a personal choice about my religious belief and so on. And so you don't have the, you don't have the support and the formation that one once had. Number three, uh, people moving around an awful lot. Uh, mobility, right? And that's especially true amongst younger people and so on. Uh, how many times people move from one city to another in five years is quite quite surprising uh, for, for a, a younger generation especially. Number four, there's been culturally an increase in the desire for inclusive values. And I won't go into what inclusivity means, but you all know different kinds of things. But the point is that churches are viewed as by definition, through their commencements, and it doesn't even matter what kind of church, as intrinsically exclusivist. They want people to believe the same thing, and that's not inclusivist by def definition. And number five, the valuing of diversity, family, race, sexual preference, and so on, means that communal churches don't really seem to have a place for, for things. So um, that, those are some of the main reasons people are giving for the decline of Christianity in North America. Now, there are some sociologically sensitive church spokespeople who responded to this in some of these articles I've been reading. And they're saying, oh, well, don't worry so much. You know, this is actually all good because it's forcing Christianity to become more nimble and more adaptive to the culture and, and so on. Get, get beyond membership. You know, that's bad. Or, or uh, you know, this is a spur to digital worship and multi-faith teaching and, and uh, finding your faith and commitments, wider commitments than church commitments to social justice and personal expression and so on. Um, so that's what the sociologists are doing around this. And I have to say, I'm a great fan of sociology. Had I not become a theologian, I might well have, in my academic discipline, moved into sociology, because uh, I find it fascinating. But I think that from a sociological perspective, uh, rather, pardon me, from a theological perspective, sociology's value is purely negative. 
It's not positive. It's a kind of secular, here I'll use a big word, homartology, which is a fancy Greek word meaning the science or the study of sin. Um, much as psychology is the study of sort of the weirdnesses of the human mind, sociology is the study of the weirdnesses of human community. Um, and when it comes to religious belief itself, as to say to, we'll call it faith, sociology has little to tell us, except what it looks like when faith frays and unravels. Uh, that is what happens when sin gets the upper hand and Satan, as it says in Job, ro ro roams to and fro upon the earth. Sociology is very good at describing that. That is one reason I think it's worth paying attention to. Uh, and paying attention to by Christians in the same way that for some very real social reasons, we should study carefully the books of Samuel and Kings. I say, this is what happens in the world when things go. So just to name some sociologists who have dealt with this question of religious decline, going back to the beginning of the 20th century, Emil Durkheim, one of the founders of sociology, who, who uh, gave us the concept of anomie, sort of lostness, which he, uh, which he uh, attached the fact that human labor, our work, has gotten all disconnected from life and community, which leads people to a sense of, why am I doing what I'm doing? Because it's not connected to anything but making some money and, and being able to survive. Or Richard H. Richard Niebuhr in the mid-20th century, a great theologian sociologist who studied how American denominations are largely formed by social patterns of immigration and class. We've all heard about the Episcopal Church, uh, you know, being upper crust and so on, but, you know, they're the Methodists and the Presbyterians and Pentecostals. It's all shaped by, not all, but uh, largely shaped by social background. That's, that's very important. More recently, uh, David Martin, who has written about secularization, uh, Steve Bruce, similarly. I'm giving you some big names, Pippa Norris and Ronald Englehart, who've talked about why is it that America has held on to religious belief, even though it is declining, more than Europe. And part of that has to do, they claim, with America is actually a very insecure society compared to, I don't know what, Denmark or something. And, and people latch on to faith more when life is insecure. Anyway, I think uh, these are all fascinating things that are worth, are worth Christians paying attention to, in part because they're sort of mirrors to our weaknesses, our ignorances, our, our, our stubborn self-regard and angers, not just as individuals, but as uh, societies. And I think that to read these kinds of sociological studies about faith and decline and so on is to help us to see more clearly the things of which we should repent, if you will, uh, or for which we should pray for mercy. Uh, and they press us to consider how we are to guard what is good and oppose what is evil. At least that's what I would hope. But what sociology cannot do is to give us faith or to give it back again. And I think it's really important to make this, this distinction. It cannot even point us to how to look for faith or how to recognize it truly or how to encourage it. And there's a simple reason for this. Here's the theologian now coming in. Faith is a gift of God, period. It's a gift of God whose offering is not in our power to manipulate 
and whose absence is not in our power to reverse. We should pray for faith, obviously. Increase our faith, the disciples asked Jesus. Help my unbelief, the father of the sick son cries out desperately. But sociology can only tell us that this may be a good time to pray. It can't tell us how we're supposed to sort of make up the answering of our own prayers. And more basically, prayer itself, I believe anyway, and that's what we're taught, is given within what theologians call the economy of God, how God orders history, the times of our lives, simply because faith and unbelief are themselves the fruit of God's ordering of history. So, for instance, it has always puzzled and indeed disturbed many, including me, to see how Jesus, and before him Isaiah, whom Jesus quotes and Paul quotes, spoke of unbelief as a divinely providential destiny for some and at just some times. So, Jesus quotes, Make the heart of this people fat and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That's what Jesus says, quoting Isaiah, who was speaking to Israel. And Paul, as I say, says the same thing. To be sure, there's an implication in these sorts of texts that unbelief is itself the product of some earlier faith lessness by the people, and to that extent, given somewhere in their decisions. But by the time we get to Isaiah and Jesus and Paul quoting all this, you can't tell where that all started. Um, and indeed, now, according to Jesus, belief is simply grace. He says to the disciples, to you it has been given to know, and to them not. So I said that's kind of disturbing. But I think it's pretty fundamental with respect to the dynamics of faith. And perhaps you could say, okay, this is where we all sit back and we have the, listen to the debate about free will and determinism and so on and so forth, which is interesting enough, but that's certainly not what Jesus is trying to get us to do when he says things like this. I think the point for Jesus is simply uh, that we seize upon the gifts of God and let go of the incessant need we have to fix everybody, including ourselves. And certainly not for the sake of reversing social trends. Unbelief is just that. It's a lack of thanks, and hence the faithful receipt of the gifts that God has in fact given us. Like the gifts of the word written, the gifts of the testimony of the prophets and the saints, the gifts of the sacraments of the church, the gifts of the praise of the church's children, and the commands of God, and so on and so forth. So, look, when sociologists unhelpfully sort of act like they're offering a positive religious science, then we get so-called missional syllogisms lifted up like the following. Okay, sociologists tell us People have stopped going to church because they're more at ease with computer screens than with people. Therefore, we ought to offer them church on a screen. And the corollary consequence is laid out. Then they will believe. Or at least, then we will have new church members, maybe. 
And so you get a whole set of unhelpful, as far as I'm concerned, arguments that follow. For instance, if we speak in this kind of language, and not that one, if we offer this kind of service, and not that, if we arrange these kinds of new personal relationships, and not others, if we refashion this or that material context of our life, if we talk about this and not about that, then unbelief can turn into faith. Those are the way these things are thought about, and obviously so. Or then at least unbelief will sort of shed its, what do you want to call it, its, its filthy clothing and reveal itself as really hidden religiosity. People are already waiting and will just pull off the, the screen and, and get, get to them and they'll, they'll flock to our churches. How many clergy conferences I have attended or missionary workshops or even seminary faculty meetings where this is at least the driving assumption. And I am convinced the assumption is absolutely false. Unbelief is not and has no socially distinct causation. That seems to be what Jesus is saying. Now, that's a theological claim. I realize that. But then again, I'm a theologian. So, Jeremiah says, they will listen and not hear. So how do you speak to unbelief? Biblically speaking, unbelief is a darkness. That's what it is. Darkness cast across the peoples, Isaiah says. Canada and the United States are becoming darker every day, and not just during wintertime. And that is what sociology actually can tell us, or at least describe the darkness from the outside, as it were. But only the gospel can tell us how, quote, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And the gospel is a description of this. Now, does the gospel change societies? People have argued about that. We'd like to think it does. Uh, if you look at the arc of history as, as, as the Bible describes it, that's a little less clear. Might change it for a bit, but in the long term? To the degree that this gospel, which describes the coming of the light to the darkness of the peoples, is an effective instrument of faith, I think it is only so in its enunciation. As Paul writes, so faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes by the preaching of Christ. So the gospel has to be voiced. But that enunciation takes in necessarily a range of very, you could call them non-functionalist elements that no sociology could ever make sense of. Elements like the fact that the gospel's articulation can also have the odd effect of causing unbelief. Paul's assertion that the folly of the cross is the wisdom of God marks out a mystery, the mystery maybe, that sociology can never penetrate. Likewise is Paul's own announcement that is just it is just this sociologically bizarre divine mystery of which he is not ashamed and for which he is willing to be put in and eventually die in prison. 
So how are we to talk about unbelief in the grand history of the world? I think just in the same way as the scriptures do. For when it comes to unbelief and belief, Jesus chooses a very non-sociological and unscientific approach. He speaks in parables. That's exactly where he, where, he, where he quotes, if you remember this Isaiah thing about make people's ears, you know, stop them up and their hearts fat and so on. He's talking about, they ask him, why are you speaking in parables? So that you will believe and they will not. Um, so he speaks in parables, parables that the faithless do not understand and that those called somehow do, snared by the strangeness of Jesus in whom, they, in whom are wrapped all the mysteries of God, including the great mystery of sin itself, the mystery of iniquity Paul talks about, which seems to be stirring up sin wherever it goes in unbelief. Unbelief does therefore have a function historically. But for Jesus, it's a parabolic function. Now I'm talking like a theologian. I'm switching a little harder. It's a little hard to get statistics about the parabolic function of, 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 of uh, unbelief. Faithlessness growing and spreading in our midst, according to scripture and Jesus, is a figure that actually takes us into the life of God through the breadth of the word of the scriptures written. For there is in the word in the scriptures, there we learn how divine punishment becomes in God's hands a means of repentance somehow for people. That's why it's happening, so that some people will repent. Uh, we learn in the scriptures how rebellion becomes a place into which mercy pours. Why aren't people believing? Well, in some cases, so that God might have mercy on them. And I seem a strange reason, but that appears to be one of the major reasons. How the object of rejection we learn in scriptures is the very person of redemption. Of course, that is at the center of our faith that we're going into in Holy Week next week. In scripture, we see how all around us there is sin and unbelief. And yet all around sin, there are the tremors of grace that drill right through its core. So, to summarize, history and its social analysis cannot clarify the conditions of faith. History as the recounting of the past is, as the scriptures tell us, but one grand parable of God's complete and comprehensive ordering of creation. And I could point to many scripture verses that talk about this. And so the Christian response to unbelief is thus not to manipulate faithlessness as social levers, but to follow the way of Christ, the word who speaks the world. Simple obedience, that is, marks the great enunciation and untangling of God's parables, which is history itself. So that in one of his parables, the faithful servant ends by saying what? I have only done my duty. I've only done my duty. That's what the faithful servant says who has followed history's master to the parable's mysterious end. One where the light outlasts and finally banishes the darkness altogether. Human history is veiled. It's limited. 
whether you are here or in the Ukraine. We only know God's history clearly. That's the only one we know clearly, not our own. And that's why we obey and enter into and follow God's history in order to get, if you will, the clear kernel of truth about our lives. So I don't mind calling myself a conservative on this front, and not in terms simply of hewing to old ways, but rather finding a way to be focused, focused and steady on the simple truths that, if you will, the gospel provides us. It took me years of study and PhD and teaching to come to this rather obvious point. That's the world we live in. Whether it gets people to believe or not is not the point. It can't be. Paul is very clear on this in writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.16. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood by my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully uh, proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. It's a fascinating way to describe the point of his life. I spoke the gospel. I was put in prison for it. I spoke it again. Everybody abandoned me. And I kept speaking it. And maybe somebody will hear it. And then Paul gives the outcome, which is very circumscribed. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. That's where his personal history finally roots itself. And Paul did all this in prison, in a courtroom, as it were. Not with newspapers, not with journals or TV cameras or anything. Just where he was. So in my view, in the face of unbelief then, in the big picture of history, we are called to one thing, as he says in 2 Thessalonians. Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word or mouth or by letter. So may it be for all of us. Thanks. And I don't know if there's time for questions or not. So, great question. Um, and the, the answer is indeed yes. That is something church bodies are called to do. Israel is called to do it all the time. The whole Old Testament is a calling and an often incomplete and inadequate attempt by Israel to do that, right? And the same is true for the church, clearly. Um, so how does it, has it been done? Um, I'm looking at my wife, Annette, who's nodding in the back, in part because I don't know whether this is what she's thinking, but one of her research projects is about a church in uh, the, the, the 30s and 40s in, in southern France, a little Protestant Reformed church, whose discipline was to do this. It was hard work. I was not saying everybody did it, but the pastor, Andre Trocme, and his friends and so on, worked hard to do just this as a small mountain town church that ended up leading them in the course of World War II the Nazi invasion of France, part of France, the Vichy government's complicit work in it, to hide thousands of Jews and to save them. That's what they did. But it wasn't an easy thing. It was work to look at what is going on around us that our church is not even paying attention to. Or Am I right, Annette, in saying that that's, that's something? <laughs> 
Right, this is not our problem. We're being assaulted by the Germans. What do we have to repent of? But it is hard. It is hard. But I, it, it is done, and it has been done. I just just an example, and it's a somewhat famous example. But there are there, there are many other. But we need to, we need to move. Let me just move on. But that's a kind of repentance of a of a particular actions and so on. I think what I'm also. Uh, trying to, and I, I'm responding to the question, uh, point to is that within our larger culture today, and that's point is right, we often think we're sort of immune to what's wrong or we're innocent and so on, when in fact we have to look, every church has to constantly look at it ourselves as to how we reflect what then we point over there, the journalists are pointing the declining numbers and so on, but what's that about? So we do have to. We do have to do that. I think it's it's possible. Um, yes, Jocelyn. I'm I'm agreeing that what what you're describing and sociologists, whether they're believers or unbelievers, can describe this accurately. I think that's right. All these things are going on. But then the question is, so what is our if, back to that question? What is our responsibility in 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 engaging this? We can look at particular at particular elements that have been identified, schooling or, or you know, TV, uh, social media culture, and so on. What, what I'm trying to say is all of our attempts, and we should be responsible about that, but we shouldn't kid ourselves by thinking that if we flip the switch on this thing that's been identified and flip it on that one, that our kids are all going to start believing or not. I think that we have to be utterly committed to the central reality of our Christian witness, period. And, and we're, I, think, I worry that churches have lost their focus on that by being so focused on how to respond to each of these different elements that are rightly identified as problematic. But then we begin looking more and more. All of our energies actually reflect everything the culture is worried about, negatively rather than positively. But um, So yes, those are the things we need to properly identify and be aware about. Uh, but, but we're not going to solve matters simply by fixing each one of those things, because I'm not sure that's how faith works. I see two more questions. I know I have to finish. Um, uh, Catherine in the back, and then up, up here. Did you have your hand up? Yeah. Yeah, and, and the mobility thing is complicated. I think sociologists have talked about that. One could sort of say one problem, there are churches everywhere. That's not the issue. The issue is that it's hard to become part of a church. Uh, community is difficult. Uh, moving about doesn't, even though there are churches available, doesn't guarantee people feel comfortable joining them. And at the same time, people make their friendships and hold them um, in places which are not communally located precisely because they're moving so much. So you keep your friends from somewhere else and you do FaceTime or whatever, whatever. But actually going to the church on the corner is not the place you're going to end up finding your community. Um, Anyway, I, it's, it's, uh, it's complicated, uh, definitely complicated around these matters. There, there was a question here, and, and there were a couple more, and somebody will have to stop us. Uh, so I'm not. One more question. One more question, okay. Yeah. Yeah, as a paraphrase, that's great, thank you. Um, and and I, just to reiterate, I'm not dismissing the realities of these negative influences. So I say the sociologists are right about all these things. The question is the fixing of them. 
And understanding that it's not in our power simply to rejig the church and society so that all the levers work and faith flows once again, that is not in our power. We can respond to many of these negative influences and ought to, but we also have to, as you said, the, the, the larger repentance has to do with refocusing ourselves over and over again on the central gifts of the gospel. That, 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 that's all we are asked to do. And I think that's what God is pressing us to do. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.